welcome to Snape Chat, the voice of the Snape Dome, the podcast where we discuss all things Snape, always. Join us as we dive into the world of the bravest man we ever knew in art, fanfic, meta, and more. Obviously. This is Snape Centric with episode 22, and we have a trio of interviews for you. First, I talk with Masao the Dog, creator of the wonderful webcomic Dastardly Lemon Drops, and more. Then I chat with Miss Measured a professional seamstress with fascinating insights on the costumes used in the movies. Lastly, I speak with Heather Lee, who has set up alwayssnape.com, a website devoted exclusively to Snape. Enjoy the show. This is Snape Centric. I'm here with Masao the dog, and we're going to talk to him about his webcomic, Dastardly Lemon Drops. Okay. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm Marcel and I'm 35. I'm a gay man, neurodivergent, chronically ill, and I live in a rural mountain west town. Uh, I spend most of my time drawing, writing, and my other hobby, which is studying foreign languages. I study Japanese, Welsh, and Brazilian Portuguese. Oh, wow. So there is actually a lot of Welsh in the uh, comic that is neat. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. So how and when did you become a Snape fan? So I was out of high school and I had been working my first full-time job for, you know, like a little while, maybe half a year. And I was just really depressed. I wasn't doing much with my life outside of my job. I'd kind of given up on drawing and out of nowhere, like an acquaintance sent me this fan fiction and it was dreary, but it really teased Snary. And after reading it, I was like, I love this. I love Snary, but I had never read Harry Potter or seen the movie. Oh, (laughs) And after that, I went out and I got the first book and I started reading all the ones that hit come out at the time which I think was like the first six okay um and the whole time I just every every book I loved Snape even more yes me too (laughs) and like that really it got me drawing and everything again oh that's great yeah what do you like the best about him immediately when I started reading the books the two things that stood out to me was that one he was like a bad victim of trauma he was bitter and surly and sulky And at the time, that's like exactly what I needed. I like really related to that. And then the other thing was just how queer and feminine coded that he was Mm -hmm. in that sort of like Disney villain kind of a way. (laughs) And just the way that he was, it just really drew me to him. What came first for you, art or writing? Uh, Definitely art. I, I think it was like, I had been making my comic for years before I realized what I was doing was writing. And then it was only at that point that I really got the the courage to kind of start trying to write fan fiction. You do have some nice stories too, which we'll link to in the show notes. Thank you. How old were you when you first began creating? I I know I was really young when I started drawing sometime in elementary school. But it wasn't something that I got any confidence in or got really serious about until after high school. Are you self-taught? I would say mostly. Like, I've taken a few individual classes here and there, but I didn't go to art school. And when did you start creating comics? 
So my first big attempt at making a comic was shortly after I started reading the books. My boyfriend and I have been together like since before then, and he also draws. And we were talking about like we both like Snoopin, and we decided to make this Snoopin comic. It's still posted online. It's called Epic Snoopin Burrito. We posted on DeviantArt back in the day. Um, never uh-huh. finished it, but it taught me a lot about making comics. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds intriguing. Oh, it's so bad though. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You know, you'll have to get a start and then you've come up with a wonderful dastardly lemon drops. Thank you. So, yeah. Um, how do you come up with your overall ideas? Usually, you know, I've, I've always got like Snape stuff on the brain when I'm doing something that my mind is, is wandering, like cleaning or, you know, when I, when I was working and I didn't have anything to do ideas would just like pop in my head. And then I have, you know, I have my boyfriend and I have people that also write that I can hash out ideas with. I live with one friend and she is an amazing writer and she knows so much about politics and history. And I can sit with hours and talk to her about world building and come up with so much stuff that i never would have thought of before. So that really helps. When did you first come up with the idea for your webcomic, Dastardly Lemon Drops? So it was while I was working on that first comic, uh, Snoop and Burrito. And I, I was getting more of an idea about like how I, I like to write the characters. And I knew I wanted to write an evil Dumbledore story. And the main sort of seed of that story was what if... Regulus Black was Harry's real father. And that led to, well, Snape doesn't really hate Harry because obviously he doesn't remind him of James. He knows, but he has to pretend for both of their safety that he does hate him. And that sort of tumbled into like a bigger project that became Dastardly Lemon Drops. I like that. Thanks. Yeah. So tell us about the name. So I kind of got the idea. Maybe this is like a trope you've seen where a lot of people, when they write fix where Dumbledore is a character, he he secretly puts like a calming potion on the lemon drops that he gives people. Oh. And I think a lot of people write that as kind of like a benevolent, like caring action. But another perspective is that you could approach that from like his way of being subtly manipulative. And that's that's the energy I wanted to go with. Mm-hmm like that and your Dumbledore is frankly terrifying (laughs) will he be your main villain or will Voldemort be I kind of came up with this before I saw that Mm -hmm. you actually do have Quirrell and and Voldemort actually Mm -hmm. makes an appearance at that time yeah I mean Voldemort will be in the story and he's going to be a major antagonist but Dumbledore is the big bad so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. He's a scary dude. Yeah. Do you have the whole story planned out? I have like a, a loose outline of the story. And then as I finish each chapter, I kind of have like a series of little meetings with uh, that, that friend I was mentioning. And we work out in more detail what the next chapter, like the nitty gritty of what's going to be the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's neat. So it's, kind of a collaborative process oh yeah yeah 
for sure. How closely will your story follow the books? Uh, so far, it's followed them pretty closely, but the the further we get in the story, the more it's going to really start to deviate. And I think by the end, it's it's going to get pretty far from the, the books. Mm-hmm. Your Severus is really intriguing. He's prickly and sarcastic, but he's also vulnerable and a little soft or passive. He's also gay and non-binary. How did you arrive at this interpretation of him? So going back to the queer coding being one of the first things I liked about him, I always had canoned him as queer and I'm gay personally, but I've also really liked a lot of the meta other fans have written about the text, never characterizing Snape's love for Lily as specifically romantic. And that really opens up the possibility for, for, you know, all of us fans, like we can read him as gay, asexual, uh, bisexual, anything like, because it really never textually specifies. And over the years, I've seen other fans write and talk about the unique feminine way he's written in text Mm -hmm. to me he feels like a character who isn't confined to a binary gender and the more I wrote him the more he sort of developed into a non-binary character in my head maybe something like a demi like male where he identifies more or less with maleness but in a way that he can step outside of that as much as he wants to it's it's something that is like a home base but something that you know he likes to move around in proximity to so like i think of him as using he him pronouns which is like how i write him typically but sometimes preferring more traditionally feminine titles like witch instead of wizard Mm -hmm. and like as far as like the softness i think it comes down to how i like to write his role as a spy and as well as how young and traumatized he is like he puts on this act of being confident and invulnerable but something i noticed in the book is that he ends up being a character that we see cry and break down and be vulnerable sometimes even even though that little bit is from harry's point of view so when i imagine a story that focuses on him and he's around people he feels you know maybe more comfortable with i imagine him dropping that mask quite a bit more yeah we actually did uh we did a show about his trans coding and queer coding. Yeah, that was a great episode. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed doing that. And uh, I mean, because it's there in the text. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the comic will eventually feature the snarry pairing. Will that be sometime until we see that? Uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be quite some time. Snape will probably go through another boyfriend or two, maybe. And Harry has some growing up to do, so, yeah. Yeah. I love the way you portray Eileen, (laughs) who is, among other things, a lesbian communist hiding out in Wales. Why did you decide to make her such a rock star or strong female character? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I love writing Eileen. I wanted to see her get out of that abusive situation and really blossom. And... In the books, with Severus calling himself the Half-Blood Prince, I felt like he quietly really admired her and must have seen a strength in her that other people didn't. Because we see so little of her, but he obviously really sort of makes her part of his identity. 
Um, so I feel like there must be something really inspiring to him there. So I love the idea of exploring the potential of that and her getting away from that situation, becoming this strong, self-assured character. And I'm definitely going to do some writing about like how she got from point A, this, you know, abused, like quiet, meek wife to point B, <laughs> where she's sort of this really confident, take charge kind of character. And with her being like a Marxist Leninist and Severus being an anarcho-communist, I felt like their conflict over ideology kind of helps me to explore my own ideological journey in my life, which started from Eileen's point of view and has now ended up at Severus's. Yeah, that's interesting. I see there's a book that Harry steals from him uh, talking about but anarchy. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's actually Alexander Berkman's, I believe it's the ABC of Anarchism. Okay, yeah. And it's, it's one of the books that sort of helped me along that journey, I guess. So. Oh, that's so interesting. And yeah, I love, there's one, oh, I wish I had remembered, but where Eileen is talking about who she was hiding out with and right different camps including trotskyites i think she's right is that right yeah i mean you know on the on the left we have all kinds of secularism and infighting and things like that and i just think it's it's funny to imagine her like dealing with all these different people and having to get along with them mm -hmm. your story also features some interesting details like welsh culture and magical theory did you spend a lot of time on world building? Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. And I was always really interested in Wales. So I wanted to incorporate that into this project. As I started studying the language, I learned more about minority languages in general. And I liked the idea of there being a kind of minority magic in the Harry Potter world, like regional cultural magics that are treated by the ministry as being equivalent to dark magic. Right. And I guess the thing that really inspired me to look at it that way was specifically with Welsh, but with a lot of minority and indigenous languages across the world, children have been punished for speaking their, you know, their first language at, at school or in public. And that's, that's terrible. But you know, it's, it's really been a theme that has carried into my story. So mm -hmm. Many of the characters in your story are LGBT plus mm -hmm. or people of color. How important is representation to you? Yeah, it's really important. And I think, you know, sometimes when I'm, I'm writing the characters, like I actually kind of forget that they're not explicitly, especially like with Harry and Hermione, that they're not like explicitly the identity that... I and so many other people are drawing and writing them in canon. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, like representation and, and portraying like a lot of different identities of characters is important to me. And, and that's something that I hope to keep pushing like as I continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really enjoy that about your story. I'm glad. You also do other things like stories and art. How does that mesh with your work on Dastardly Lemon Drops? With art and writing, I have like a really rigid workflow <laughs> and I work on Dastardly Lemon Drops for at least an hour a day. And then, you know, unless I'm really pushing on getting 
a chunk of pages done, then after that hour, I'll, I'll work on my other projects. Uh, so I'll usually have like maybe one or two other projects that I'm working on at the same time. Yeah. And yeah, we'll link to your Patreon where you have, oh, is it traditional painting that you're doing or I don't know how to describe it. I've been doing a lot of things. I've been, <laughs> I've been doing some stuff in my sketchbook recently, which I actually, I stopped doing uh, traditional art, like with, with real media for a long time because my arthritis was just really, really bad, but, oh yeah, you know, as, as I try more medical like treatments, I'm a little more able to get back to that. So I've been posting that as well as just like every, everything that I draw, I'll post on Patreon. And that's usually like a few weeks to months before I post it publicly. Mm -hmm. And uh, here's probably where I would like to take a look at a passage from Dastardly Lemon Drops. I'm trying to figure out where's the best place to start here. Is it Severus at the staff meeting? Or oh, are, sure. Are they at the staff meeting or is it? The staff meeting is, is towards the end of the chapter. Oh, okay. No, I'm thinking where? Okay, Aurora and McGonagall are. Oh yeah, they're in the, uh, they're in the Great Hall. Yeah, oh, okay. And he's looking pretty awful. Yeah. <laughs> and then Minerva says, I think you should spend the night in my quarters again. Right. And he reluctantly agrees. Yeah. He doesn't like to, he doesn't like to ask for help. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, I know that's hard for him. And I really tried visually to convey that, you know, he's, he's physically not doing so well because normally he's wearing something that covers him from the neck down mm -hmm. but here he's just wearing like a kind of a, a low-cut sweater or something because you know it, it oh. just hurts too much to put clothes on mm -hmm. yeah yeah at this point he's recovering from his pregnancy yeah and Minerva just goes in her room and fixes a bed up for him right and then she says go ahead and take a pain potion and get some sleep I'll be right there at my desk, marking up the year's exams. Yep. And he's like, oh, all right, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor guy. And then he thinks I can still hear him crying. Do, do, do you want to um, talk a little bit about it? So one of the things that I really wanted to show with this chapter is that he is being triggered. His trauma is by the sound of his baby crying so what we have here as he's trying to go to sleep uh, in minerva's kind of living room of her, of her quarters he's remembering like the baby's first cries but then as he starts to fall asleep the cries of of his baby turn into the cries of babies and children that he's seen be tortured and killed while he was a death eater yeah and he sort of wakes up in terror from that. And Minerva's obviously very concerned and is, is trying to bring him out of it because he's, he's pointing his wand and, and sort of trying to, to fight a, a Death Eater who's not there to stop that person from hurting another child. And, and Minerva has to pull him out of that. She's not sure what he's experiencing, but, you know, she's telling him, uh, Bronwyn, uh, his child is safe 
and he's he's sort of half in a different time period of his life. Right. Luckily, it's a little before the Christmas holidays. Right, right. He only has a few um, days of class next. So with the next scene, the uh, I believe it's seventh year Hufflepuffs, because that's actually Tonks uh, with the short hair that's turning oh. in her potion and wishing him a happy Yule. Okay. I sort of wanted to establish <laughs> like her appearance because she'll come up and be a character later. Oh, great. And as you know, he's he's finishing up with that exam. He goes straight to his office and he touches his personal port key, which is sort of modeled on the Welsh dragon on the Welsh flag. Oh, oh how neat. And he goes to his mother's cottage in Aberystwyth to see the baby. And when she hands him the baby, he's happy to have his baby. But then, you know, as as she goes into the kitchen to see about dinner the baby starts crying and even though Severus is awake he starts to see to remember to have a flashback of uh, the Longbottoms actually being tortured by Barty Crouch Jr. and Bellatrix Lestrange so he's hearing Neville's cries in his in his head as he's hearing you know his baby's cries in real real life and his mother Eileen comes back in like finding him sort of like stunned and shaking and panicking. And he asks her to take the baby because he can't, he can't handle that right now. (laughs) And he runs away. Thankfully, slowly he, he gets through that. Yeah. With, with a lot of help from Eileen. Yeah. A lot of patience and love. Yeah. Okay. What are your future plans for Severus? So I have this Google Doc with all the shorter projects that I want to work on that I've just, I've taken notes on as I've come up with ideas. And most of them are fan fiction, mostly Snary or Snoopin. And I like the idea of writing fics and doing maybe a couple of illustrations for them. So hopefully I'll get some more of those out this year. Right now I'm working on a few. I'm working on a time travel fic where... Harry is 25. A third wizarding war has started up and his side has lost very badly. There's no hope for that timeline. So he finds a way, a one-way way to go back in time and team up with a young Snape to try to change things before either the two, the second or the third war starts. That sounds intriguing. I like that. Thanks. I hope it comes out well. And that's as a fanfic, not as a comic, right? Mm-hmm. As a fanfic. Mm-hmm. Because the, the comic is quite a laborious process, right? Yeah, it's a it's a lot of work. I love working on it every day, but I don't think that I'll start a new long-term comic until this is done. I might do a few short ones here or there, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Where can we find you online? So I'm pretty much everywhere online. I have Tumblr, Twitter, I have a Facebook page, Instagram, AO3, and then Patreon. Okay, great. We'll have links for those in the show notes. Great. And, uh, well, Masao. Yeah. Did I say that right? Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It was great. So that's pretty much it. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye.
And that was our chat with Maso. You really need to check out Gasterly Lemon Drops. It's great. Go to our additional reading page for links to the comic and more. Now listen in as I speak with Miss Measured, who brings a fresh perspective to the costumes of the Harry Potter films and Snape's specifically. This is Snape Centric, and I'm here with Miss Measured, who is a costume stitcher in Toronto. And we're going to talk to her about her work and her feelings about costumes and the movies. Okay, tell us a bit about yourself. Where to begin? Well, I guess the main thing is that I sew costumes for a living. I mostly work in opera, some ballet, uh, theater, and film. And like you said, I'm based out of Toronto, but we have a very international film scene here now, so I get to make things for all over. I have a degree in theater studies and a certificate in costume making. I spend my days working with my hands to build beautiful things, but my brain is free to write stories about Snape. (laughs) And I've been obsessed with him for like a good portion of my life now. Alan Rickman really stole my teenage heart and he has never given it back. That's great. What brought you to costume making? Actually, when I was a teenager, I thought I wanted to pursue theater as an actress. And I did. I went to university for theater. But as I delved deeper into the craft, I realized I had this intense love of costumes and it suited my anxiety personality a lot more. Um, And then that's where my skills really bloomed. And then I pursued learning more of the technical skills to get into theater in that regard after university. Now, when you look at clothing and media, do you find you look at it with a critical eye? I try not to be Um, critical per se. As somebody who works in wardrobe, I know so well that there are budgets and producers and directors with lots of decision-making involvement. So you can't really point to the designer and say, this could have been done differently or that. But what I do like to do is when I watch media, I like to think about the why of why that costume ended up being that way and what in the text led the designer and the director together to make the decision to make that costume. You've studied the history of costume. Does that inform your thoughts on wizard fashion? So much, I can't tell you. (laughs) As you know, I have a lot of opinions. So much of when you look at clothing history is looking at the social change as the uh, social mores of the time change, the silhouettes and the styles based on social etiquettes, they start to shift. And also what shifts is your idea of beauty. So when it comes to wizard costume, Historically, in fantasy literature, we see them in this like very scholarly world. They're associated with schools, they're teachers, they're mages, and they're often portrayed in robes, which are not so different from our modern graduation gowns. And I think that that's where J.K. Rowling starts with regards to her vision of wizard costume in her text. The first view we get of costume in the wizarding world is actually from Vernon Dursley, who's on his way to work the morning after Voldemort attacks the Potters. And we see through his eyes, these people out in colorful cloaks and Vernon is mad that it's not just young people doing some fad, but he he actually sees someone with a beard doing it. And he's bothered by their presence, the, the oddity and the colorfulness of it. But that history, that historical viewpoint of wizards in scholarly situations is tied to male wizards like Merlin 
But you have this whole other half of witchcraft history, which is the female side of witchcraft, which is the witch hunt, um, which dealt a lot with women and women's freedom, their sexuality, and their ability to perform that sometimes impossible role given to them by society. So I think it's fascinating, the idea of that duality between the scholarly history of men in wizarding books, learning at institutions versus more the women's witchcraft outside of society's approval. So how do you even decide to clothe the wizarding world when you have these two very different images that are held in the public ethos? You know, as a collective, when an audience comes to view a piece of media, they come with their understanding of the world as they know it. You know, we can't separate the design from the associations that we all have. An example of this being white wedding dresses. You know, most of history, wedding dresses weren't white, but we've decided as a culture that wedding dresses are white and now we expect this, right? So when you come into this text with these understandings of the history of wizards in literacy, but also in the witchcraft and the witch hunt, you have this world that has so much potential. One text reference that we get from JK herself is at the camp for the Quidditch World Cup in Goblet of Fire. We see there's like a ministry wizard who's pleading with a wizard named Archie. And Archie is wearing a muggle women's nightgown. Uh, and the ministry wizard is like, please put on these pinstripe trousers. Muggle men wear these, you know, and he, Archie protests and he says, I like to have a healthy breeze around my privates, <laughs> which seems to imply that JK's world her, or her view of the wizarding men is that they would mostly not even be able to conceive of trousers. They'd be in their robes. But then in the films, we only see Albus in that style of robe for the most part. So most at some point, the designer had to make a decision on how to build this world. And it had to have a certain look, but it had to be practical and it has to be relatable to a modern audience. So I think that that's so much to culminate into one design for this world of the Harry Potter wizarding world, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. How do you think the movies handled magical clothing in general? Well, way back when they were making that first movie, I don't think they knew that they were making a big mega smash that they were going to make all of the books, right? I'm sure the wardrobe department had limitations, like budget limitations and everything. So they chose to go that Victorian route, you know, having the wizarding world be quasi-Victorian, which is such an excellent shorthand for the audience to see the difference between the modern muggle world and the magical one. It just makes life easier for wardrobe as well, because there's a stock of wardrobe items from Victorian plays that you can grab and put on your extras, right? It's easy for the costume department in a way. Costuming is such a unique medium in that you're dressing people just so that as the camera pans over the actor, the audience is able to make several split second decisions like in the blink of an eye about who they are and what world they belong to. So the Victorian costume influence gives the impression that we're in the wizarding world now. Things are a little bit more antique, a little slower to change, but also more romantic and nostalgic for a simpler time. The movies do occasionally, though, give us some really unique wizarding flavor. My favorites are in Deathly Hollows Part 1, Elphias Dodge must have at least four collars on his outfit at Bill and Fleur's wedding. And then at Slughorn's Christmas party, we actually get to see two girls in matching amazing green dresses with little spikes on them. 
I think it's those moments that give the viewer a real taste of the possibility of mixing magic and clothing making. Anything should be possible clothing-wise in the Wizarding World. It takes me forever to make the simplest thing at work, but if I had a wand, I could make crazy things. But it's not financially possible to build a unique, bizarre wardrobe for a cast as large as the Harry Potter one. And moreover, you need the characters to be relatable. So the main characters, especially like the trio, are going to stay very close to the viewer in terms of like muggle clothes. Okay. And what are your thoughts on Snape's costume specifically? I think it's a miracle. It's a miracle that it came out so perfect because it was chosen so many years before we got his whole story. Yes. Like we all have heard this story about Alan Rickman making several requests of his costume. And he's the reason we get all these lovely buttons and why his sleeve comes down past his wrist and buttons up tight around his hand. You can also see when you look at his trousers, a similar shape. They hug his ankle and then flare out to fit perfectly around his shoe, just like it does at his wrists. His costume has two parts and they're so telling, right? First is the wool frock coat or cassock, which is so utilitarian. It's close fitting. It's no nonsense. And there's nothing that could like end up in the potions cauldron. But then you have this floating silk cotton outer robe that has all that cartridge pleating around his shoulder blades. And I think that part of his outfit performs a very different function. And that is to create space around him. Like you can imagine him like filling the hallway with these billowing robes and students rushing to like clear out of his way because you wouldn't want to accidentally step on his robe. So that outer robe is really what gives the dungeon bat his wings and also his personal space. Yes. <laughs> the movies use Victorian costume influences to create the wizarding world. How do you think that plays into Snape's costume? I think it adds a very interesting layer to him. So his jacket has been described as a frock coat or a cassock. Those are very similar objects um, historically, but what makes his a cassock is the way that it buttons up all the way to the neck and it has a waist, a waist seam. So it very much it lives in cassock territory. And the thing about when you put the Wizarding World into Victorian-inspired wardrobe is you're also layering in this part of history that's associated with a rise in Christian values, especially related to purity. And priests at that time wear these cassocks and they have these same little pops of white like Severus does at his collar and cuffs. And we as an audience carry that communal imagery into the movie theater with us. So somewhere in the back of our brains, we see that imagery in his costume, even if it's not conscious. And I think that it adds a really interesting overlay to Severus, because if you think about him wearing this Victorian priest cassock, they were celibate. So putting this celibate imagery onto Snape is interesting because after we get all the information about him, we learn there is that layer of him holding himself back for this one love, whether that's an intentional part of his costume design or not. And then more to the point, when you bring celibacy into the conversation, you are inevitably bringing sexuality into it too. And I wonder if that's part of where his sexual appeal comes from, because the fandom loves to sexualize Snape. I am definitely guilty. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, sometimes I think it's important to think about what does the text say about the person as well, about the costume without saying it. And one of the things that we have with Severus is that JK has chosen to call him the potions master, playing on the Victorian schoolmaster phrase. 
but he's the only teacher at Hogwarts that we get that for. We don't really hear Transfiguration Master or Charms Master. And he resides in the dungeons. So in a way, he's kind of a dungeon master, <laughs> which is very like a charged couple of words, which I don't think she ever puts together. But I think that that idea definitely plays into the way that people portray him in fan fiction and art. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's such a great perspective on it. What would you have done differently? Oh, goodness. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> because I, I think of it as like a miracle that that costume fit so perfectly with what we end up finding out about the character over the course of the series. You know, he has all these buttons. He holds all his secrets in close to his chest. That costume is designed with all those buttons before we even know that he's a spy. More than a spy, he's a double agent. And he's buttoned up so perfectly and then it's revealed that Snape's not only keeping secrets in a normal way, but he also has to master his own mind so that the Dark Lord couldn't see the truth in it. Imagine not even having your own mind as a safe space. You know, I would be buttoned up too, like all the way out to my fingers, all the way out to my toes. <laughs> Plus his secrets about Lily and his past trauma. So no wonder he's so like tightly fitted in. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, you also write fanfic. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I'm writing two right now. One is called Stitch Witch, and that's three short parts where I imagine myself as a seamstress at Madame Malkin's, and I'm tasked with making Severus a new set of robes. I enjoy mm. writing that one because I get to describe a little bit of the intimacy that I experience when I handle someone's garments at work. And my other one is much longer. It's my passion project, and it's very spicy. <laughs> it's called The Stars on the Staircase. Uh -huh. This story is told by a female reader, and we're drawn into Severus's life by magical forces against our control years before Harry comes back to Hogwarts. And we become very intimate friends with the potions master. And it's kind of a sexy mystery as to why the reader and Snape are connected in the way they are until much later during his time as the headmaster um, and the war. Okay, that's interesting. And we'll, of course, have links on the website. Where can we find you online? Yeah, you can check out my links for my AO3 profile, Wattpad, and I'm, I just joined Tumblr, and I'm mismeasured on all three of those. Great. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us, Mismeasured. Thank you for having me. It was so nice to talk to you. Yeah. Take care. I really enjoyed Mismeasured's observations, and I hope you did too. Last but not least, here is Heatherly to discuss alwayssnape.com, her new All Snape website. This is Snape Centric, and I'm here with Heatherly, who is creating alwayssnape.com, which is a Snape fan site. All Snape all the time. All Snape all the time. I love it. <laughs> so, why did you decide to uh, do this? Well, I've been creating fan sites for a very long time. I started in 2003 when I was obsessed with Lord of the Rings. And back then you kind of you kind of had to make your own communities because there was no social media and there was no quick and easy way to do it. So I taught myself how to build websites and that branched off into a freelance career as well. But that's not important. Like my passion was always the fan sites. So I did it for Lord of the Rings. I did it for a show called Merlin. I did it for several different fandoms. And when I got into Snape in 2012, I thought about doing it then. But 
by then social media had taken over and I was like, well, maybe there's not enough of an appeal because it's hard to get people off of social media in more recent times. But I found myself missing that sense of community because it's it's just different. It's a closer knit group of people who all like the same thing. You don't get the abuse and the all the spam and other garbage you get on social media. I just thought it was time to do something a little retro. Well, I really like that. I spent some time in a different, in a music fan site that was really good. Oh, that's awesome. And it, it did have that sense of community. Yeah, you really get to know people very well. You Like some of my closest friends to this day are people I met 20 years ago through my fan sites. And on social media, you know, it's like, it's like being a big fish in a little pond versus being a little fish in a big pond. And I think on social media, people can feel kind of invisible and you only talk in passing and you just, it's not the same kind of environment. It's, it lacks that intimacy and closeness, that comfort level, you know? I mean, there's a lot of stuff I would not put on social media that I would talk about freely on my own site because I know it's a safe space. And I just, I really wanted to give that to other Snape fans in particular, because we both know what Snape fans can go through on social media. Oh, yes. So true. I've seen some disgusting things over the years, and I, I thought, you know, I can provide an environment where that just does not happen, where you can love Snape the way you want to love him, and no one will give you grief for it, where James stands aren't coming after you 24-7. You know, I just hate the combativeness and I'm sure other Snape fans do too so I want to give them a way to get away from that you know mm -hmm. how are you setting up the site will it have different areas for art and fic and things like that oh yeah well anybody members will be able to add their artwork to our galleries or they can they can post meta you know discussion and stuff that will show up on the front page as blog posts and or they can just hang out on the forum and just talk to other fans and start threads about their favorite ships or recommend stories you know they can promote their own stories whenever they start a new one or post a new chapter get help with writing you know anything basically and it should be very easy to use obviously I'm a computer person so it's it's a little more geared towards laptops in desktops than mobile, but you can use it on mobile. Mm -hmm. What are your goals with this site? My main goal, I think, is to have one definitive Snape place, you know, because when you search on Tumblr or Twitter or any of the social media sites, you know, the Snape stuff is kind of spread out all over the place and you have to go through all sorts of non-Snape related stuff to get to it. And social media is... It's bad about permanence because there's so much stuff being posted and, you know, posts that's three weeks old gets buried. So with this site, I want more of a sense of permanence. Like you can go on there, you know, three years from now and still access all the artwork and everything you can get to quickly and easily. I think that's important. And my other goal is just, you know, I don't care how big the community gets. I just want a nice community where people feel comfortable mm -hmm. and can be creative and imaginative with other Snape fans. That sounds great. What features will it have? 
I mean, like I said, it, it's very much geared towards sharing your artwork and your meta and your fan fiction. And there will be multiple ways to do that on the site. You just sign up and you can post, basically. And it should be as easy to use as, say, Tumblr or Twitter or whatever. You don't have to know anything technical. Sounds good. Yeah. And of course, once we get a few members, I'll start planning fun stuff for different people, you know, artwork challenges and writing challenges. And maybe we'll have some contests. I mean, you know, with something like this, you're really starting from scratch. So part of my plan is just to let the community lead me and tell me what they want. Okay. That sounds great. So how can people get involved? Just visit alwayssnape.com. It's all one word, no no underscores or hyphens or anything, just alwayssnape.com. And if you go to the site, you can find my contact info. You can email me. You can find all our different social media links if you'd prefer to get in touch through there. There's multiple ways. Mm-hmm. As much as I've complained about social media, it is necessary to reach people. So we have we have a Twitter, Facebook page, Instagram, and a Discord. And that'll obviously people will be able to get to that once they can go on the site. So but for now, the easiest way to get in touch with me is just to email me. And and of course you're free to put that email address in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anyone, any Snape fan who would be interested in being a moderator, like, you know, keeping things chill around the site. We do need moderators and we need fans who can contribute their creations, you know, their fan fiction, their meta, their artwork. So if you fall into any of those categories, please get in touch. Okay. That sounds like that covers all our points. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about it? I think the final thing I would say is, if you've never been part of an independent fan community, at least try it because it really is a totally different experience and it can be very rewarding. And of course, it doesn't cost you anything but a little bit of time. Just sign up and hang out with other Snake fans. Yeah. It's great. Uh, it does sound great. Yeah. Okay. AlwaysSnape.com. I guess I should also say that I'm looking forward to having a centralized location for Snape fans. Oh, absolutely. All righty. Well, thank you, Heatherly, for taking the time to talk with me. You're more than welcome. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed these awesome interviews. Thanks again to Masao, Miss Measured, and Heatherly appearing on the show. Check out the additional reading page on our website at snakechatpodcast.com for links and more. And here we must say goodbye. We wish we didn't have to, but it hasn't escaped our notice that life isn't fair. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr and Twitter, email us or leave a voicemail. We want to hear from you. Support us on Coffee to help this very cost of production. Many thanks to Nix for her continued work on our website at snakechatpodcast.com. Be sure to check out Care of Magical Shippers podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay snarky.